the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Tashir, as it's called, is a Saudi war dance that brings a whole new meaning to the phrase, jumping the gun. It's a little fuzzy there. It was once performed by Saudi warriors to instill fear in their enemies, but now is a social affair. Barefoot and wearing traditional headdress, the men jump as high as they can with long muskets pointed down at the earth, hoping to reach maximum height before firing it off under their feet and landing, hopefully, on the other side of that explosion. It's a stunning visual affair, and um, it's captured all over the place in this perfectly timed moment where you can see these bursts of fire as they reach maximum height for stunning visual effects. The fire dance, as it's called, uh, always draws large crowds as many are mesmerized and captivated by this split-second moment that it achieves. And yet, we must wander and wonder in our minds how many hours that go into and how many misfires quite literally happen before they achieve such a moment. And as mesmerizing as this moment and others like it may be, we have an equally mesmerizing moment before us in the pages of Scripture. But we often jump the gun to the end result, if you will, of what we see therein, missing the process that leads up to it. So this morning, I'd invite you to look with me back at Acts chapter 8, our first reading this morning in your Bible, or you can follow along on the screens. And as you locate it, let's note again how often we can jump the gun looking at passages like this and looking at it and saying, how can I hear the Lord so clearly as depicted in these verses, or perhaps have such incredible wisdom of the Scriptures that leads to such miraculous conversions as expounded therein? Or how can I have such eloquence to articulate the faith? And the list could go on and on. But in many ways, we jump the gun about the condition of the heart that leads to such moments that are before us, as depicted with Philip in the eunuch, which frames up all that we see. It's a posture of the heart that leads us to be open to what God is doing in this moment and in every such moment down through the ages in the lives of those so attuned to the Lord. So as we look at this passage, let's look at that, talking about prayer, um, not the modes and models of prayer per se, but actually the posture of our heart in which we must go to prayer before the Lord that kind of frames up those conversations with Him. So this passage opens as we read, as an angel of the Lord speaks audibly to Philip, rise and go some distance away from where he is in Jerusalem to this deserted place on this road leading towards Egypt, this road to Gaza. But notice, if you will, that this is a bit unusual as biblical encounters are with the angelic hosts that appear. Notice what's missing. If you think back to almost every biblical encounter with angels, usually it opens with two words fear not. That's always what it begins with. And why is this different? Well, this is not Philip's first encounter with the heavenly realm. As you may recall, Philip was first called away from his fishing endeavors by Jesus some years prior. And from that moment, 
he was told that he would be a fisher of men. And he hooked his first one with his friend and colleague and dear uh, soul, Nathaniel, and said, come and see Jesus. And then one miraculous encounter followed another, and the teachings that they heard at Jesus' feet and the miracles they saw Jesus perform, and certainly in the pinnacle moment of that in Jesus' resurrection and these accounts on the other side that led to Pentecost. In many ways, this moment comes on the heels of so many that placed Philip in a posture where he was willing to receive such interruption in his day uh, by this angelic host. So I think there's a first thing to pause and observe here in the posture of prayer that we could reflect on, namely that of being present, as simple as that may seem. Philip had been present before Jesus so many times before, and yet we often sometimes jump to the moments of action and forget all those moments of presence in God's presence, regularity, routine, and moment after moment after moment where he was before the Lord. I think it challenges us to ask ourselves the same. Do we have a regular routine to be present with the Lord? Are we present with the Lord even when we are in prayer, or are we kind of ticking through our mental list of things we need to do and then looking at our watch and going, well, that's good, i got to get off to the next thing. Um, are we fully present with our Lord, and do we make times to be with Him? Because those frame up the moments that lead to these. Those are the moments that create relationship, just as with our friends, our spouses, and our family members. That when we're truly present, there the Lord begins a mighty work in our heart. And as we present ourselves before Him, it's there that we bring our needs, yes, but we also bring our very souls to the task of prayer whereby, by God's grace, we may surrender a bit more to His will. Now, that doesn't have to be uh, a mystic or a monastic moment where you, you know, have these huge blocks of time. In fact, um, one whole monastic movement uh, pointed out that sometimes you could just do that with regularity for five minutes at three points in the day, just examining your heart and the events of the morning as noon draws upon us and in the afternoon and the evening. Did I live or act in a way that accords with God's will? Or are there things that I may need to turn back to? The point is to be present with the Lord, not muddle through our own lists or our own ideas, but truly to be in a place of openness and surrender that forges greater relationship with Him. Because you see, it's from that relationship and that posture that Philip is enrolled into action back in verse 27. Quite easily, we see that his encounter with the angelic host leads him to obedience, and he goes. He goes, quite simply, to this unknown location, heading out in a direction where its details are yet sparse, and even the um, exact moments that he will encounter have not yet been revealed. We often jump to the encounter with the Ethiopian, and we kind of forget that, I mean, when the angel appears to him, there's not a defined GPS location to plug in. There's not a moment that this is why you're going and a moment to prepare for what the encounter will look like. It's just go. And as he goes, wandering down this dusty road, it's there that the Holy Spirit meets him a second time and reveals to him what the next stop will be. There's a whole depth of teaching 
right there that we'll park for another time. But um, for our purposes, we see that Philip goes out on this expedition, if you will, having his day interrupted um, by the Lord, and he obediently does it, even though he only knows in part what it will entail, namely some event to go on this road to Gaza leading down to Egypt. Will he get all the way to Egypt? He has no clue. But he's just going to walk until the Holy Spirit tells him to do otherwise. And as he gets to that place and leads up to that moment, we see that he encounters the Ethiopian. And even there, as he begins to see this man in his caravan of great prominence come into focus, perhaps on the horizon, and hears those words go over to that chariot, he doesn't know who this guy is. He doesn't know, is he ready to hear about Jesus? Is he ready to have this unpacked? What should I say? All those things have yet to be defined, and yet Philip again obeys and goes. And I think that reveals a second point for us about the inner life and the posture of prayer is one really of readiness. It's an openness to both receive and respond to what God gives us. Philip was ready. He was open for that encounter in the moment that had been arranged for him when the angel appeared in Jerusalem. He was open to the Holy Spirit to follow his leading and go out on this expedition. He was ready to respond even in the midst of sparse details, outcome not yet fully known or identified. In the midst of his own doubts and perhaps his own fears, in the midst of it, Philip was ready. Such an interior posture of prayer is one that doesn't just come in the moment, but is one that comes through the seasons of preparation that he has had with our Lord and even now with the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, on the other side of Pentecost. I think as we reflect on it, it calls us to consider the same, our own readiness to respond to the Lord, a readiness that flows from regularity in the presence of the Lord, a readiness that's cultivated through trust in Jesus, codified through times of trial and temptation that the Lord has seen us through, and through a loving relationship that has been built. It comes when we're ready to encounter the Lord, both in the miraculous, such as here, as well as the mundane. And let it be known that it may not always be an audible voice or some huge miraculous sign from heaven. In fact, one of the greatest examples of this is in the life of Mother Teresa of late. Um, We always see her as this towering figure in her lifetime. But after her death, Some of her memoirs that were written as an exchange between she and her spiritual director were published. And she said of herself, I quote, During a long many years, there was a silence and emptiness so great that I look and do not see, I listen and do not hear. And she felt that even in doing the work that she was called to do, she was hypocritical, given this great silence of interaction between she and in the Lord. Makes me find even more hope and uh, love her and respect her all the more when you think about the fact that in many times prayer is one that we will work through and work out, and God conditions our hearts for seasons where we may hear something incredible and great, and for the mundane where we just go to God's Word and put into practice with regularity the things He says, to love on those around us, to forgive quickly, to do mercy, show justice, and so forth. It's a readiness that we may not always get the examples for, but mobilizes our heart, whether it's in the miraculous and the mundane, knowing how to obey 
from such a place. And such a readiness marks a major moment that leads us at this point to the miraculous encounter between Philip and the Ethiopian in verses 30 and following. Because we see it's from that posture in God's presence, it's from that readiness and openness that Philip has that he draws near to this yet unknown to him, but obviously powerful person. And as he does, the miraculous happens. Philip just happens to invite himself, a pretty bold act, up into his chariot. And when he does, he hears him reading aloud, which would be very customary, these portions from Scripture. We can imagine as he hears Isaiah read, his heart must go at ease, realizing that I'm in good company here. It becomes clear that this man is a God-fearer, not of the house of Israel, but is coming back from Jerusalem and indeed is wrestling with these things. And so Philip jumps in, asking if he understands, and off to the races we go as he explains the gospel to him and shares with him the good news of Jesus and then ultimately is led to baptize this man who God had already gone before to prepare the heart of his uh, own well-being for that moment. Namely, Jesus er, worked through that, through Philip, and he approached him with this goal in mind. And I think there's something really obvious here to just note, that part of prayer and our posture is not just a presence with the Lord, it's not just a readiness that comes, but what is our aim in going to the Lord? By that I mean this, Philip had to wrestle down the moment he jumped into that chariot, why am I here? Why am I doing this? Am I here to show this man of great power even greater power? Am I here to uh, expound my own eloquence and taunt my own ego and the expounding of scriptures that rivals and even exceeds that of these scribes and Pharisees he's just returning from? In a sense, his heart had to be in a posture that was ready to be used. And while he may not, in this moment, ask himself, what is my aim, it's clear and evident to us because of the outcome that we see laid forth before us. Lest we trip over it, it gives us pause as well. You see, Philip did have a choice. He had a choice to respond or back down. He could have taken it in a different direction. He could have made his aim something else. And yet, the good news for us, as well as the good news for this eunuch and all down through the ages, he becomes the first Gentile convert, as we know, this eunuch because Philip was not focused on lesser things, but rather kept his aim on the greatest prize, namely that this man might come to know Jesus, be folded in, and find what he had found. And he even checked, as it pains us, and, you know, nice vestments and candles and structures, that we don't know what that body of water looked like. It certainly wasn't a tidy font or pool. It could have been a murky little puddle that he actually baptized this eunuch in along the way. The end was that this man might be folded in through his conversion in the waters of baptism. That was his aim, Philip's aim. What is ours in going to the Lord in prayer? Something we should check our heart with, namely, will we remain vulnerable and open, seeking certainly what we need, but towards the end of knowing that God knows what we need best when we ask for healing, that if he heals us or someone we pray for in a way that is more needful than the obvious, then thanks be to God. If he seeks to do something beyond the obvious ways that we have worked through and, uh, and figured out with others, then wonderful. That the end is that we truly believe and trust the Lord 
And that is our aim as we go to him in prayer. One final lesson back at the end of this in verse 39. There's a miraculous moment we discover right at the end where this moment of rejoicing we quite literally see gets cut short abruptly as Philip is swept away and finds himself in Azotos in a Greek region where Philip is Greek and it makes sense that he would do the work of bringing the good news of Jesus in that area. But it's a hard shift, even as we read it. One minute he's there, one minute he's not, and yet Philip seems willing to just be dropped in, quite literally, wherever the Lord needs him. I think that's a wonderful thing to ponder, just for a moment as we conclude. He has a bit of an indifference to the trappings of this world. In the midst of uh, this high moment of celebration, kind of reveling in what God has done, he's willing to just be cut loose from that and go on to the next thing. That's a hard thing to do, to say yes to the Lord in all circumstances, even when it may mean that we either give something up or don't get to linger as long or perhaps have to make sacrifices along the way. And that is what the posture of prayer is all about, namely that and times in God's presence from such readiness of heart and checking our aim that we're in a place where we'll say yes, yes to what the Lord leads us to do, either as revealed in the pages of Scripture in the broader body as he reveals it corporately in prayer and the silence of our own hearts, whereby prayer is the work that wholly attaches us to God so that we too can become more indifferent towards the world. Not indifferent about the cares of the world or the concerns, but that our hearts aren't trapped by the accolades of others, um, the acclaim of what we might receive or whatever that might look like, but we're ready to respond in all circumstance. So instead of jumping the gun this morning to just look at postures of prayer and modes of prayer, which perhaps we can do as this month progresses, it seemed like a necessary place to start by looking at where that all begins in the condition of our heart and the posture of our heart before the Lord. Because it's from that posture, as Scripture reminds us today, that we need to first be present with our Lord Jesus, to be ready and open to Him, to keep our sights on the highest aim and to be willing to say yes as we move throughout the various seasons of life. It's there that we pray, both in the big and small ways, as we navigate all that the Lord has for us in this life. In it, we are transformed. In it, the lives of those around us are. And in it, by God's grace, the world is as well. So may we reorient and recommit our hearts to such a posture in prayer daily as God works in and through us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.